0: Learn all about investing in real estate in San Jose, California, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to San Jose, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to San Jose. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. All right, so quick turn and flipping properties. Really basic definition here. We're buying properties, we're adding value in some form or another, and uh, then we're going to resell the properties. And it's usually as quickly as possible, though there's some variations where we slow them down. So adding value, before I get too far into this, I want to kind of classify this a little bit more. So I think a lot of people are familiar with this idea of buying a property, going in. You know, putting a new roof on or putting new carpet in, updating the kitchen, adding bathrooms, rehabbing the bathrooms, you know, those types of things. But adding value doesn't always have to be that. Um, And and I'll even go off on another tangent for a second here. Um, There was a period of time, many years ago now, where I used to cater to fix and flip investors. That was like my niche. I was a real estate broker and that was my main strategy is I would cater to real estate investors. And um, I'll I'll tell you a little bit more of the story because tonight would be the night to do it most real estate brokers they work this way they go and they they, go, they kind of do marketing in order to find clients the client comes in they say hey listen i'd like to buy a property that has this kind of characteristics and then the real estate agent would go try to find those properties go show them those properties help them write a contract in that property and then help shepherd them through uh being under contract to closing i was like you know fix and flip deals are much harder to find especially in a hot market they're a lot trickier to do and I'm not going to work that way. I, what I would rather do is, I would use skills in order to find like, properties that are hiding in plain sight and more unusual fix and flip opportunities or more fix and flip opportunities or doing marketing in order to find off-market fix and flip opportunities for clients. And so instead of a real estate agent who would go and say, okay, you're going to hire me, we're going to have a buyer's agent agreement and then I'm going to go help you do this. I said, that's not how I'm going to work because those guys get paid when they, when they close on a deal. What I said to them is, look. What you're going to do is you're going to write me a check up front you're going to pay me a retainer and from the retainer i'm going to charge you hourly for the work that i do in order to find you fix and flip deals and uh, i'm going to analyze the mls for undervalued properties and show you opportunities that you probably didn't know existed but i'm going to charge you hourly for that when you eventually do go buy a property and i don't do this anymore by the way um, but when you go do and finally do buy a property and you use me to buy the property whether it's on the market you know inside the mls or outside the mls then I will um, earn a commission on that. And any money that you paid in up to that point, I will credit you back. So it's not like you paid any more. It's not like you paid $10,000 plus the retainer an hourly. You basically paid the same fee, except because a lot of people say they want to do fix and flips, and then they don't close, or there's a lot of work involved in doing fix and flips, upfront that sometimes you get to the point where they're like, you know, sorry, I wasted your time, but I'm no longer interested, you know, things have changed or whatever they're doing. I was like, I'm not doing it that way. So I would actually help people do this and I'd find those strategies that way. And one of the reasons I tell you this is one of the secret things that I found with properties is a lot of people go, they look for very distressed properties, properties that need a lot of work that are, you know, smoke damage or water damage or they got mold or they got asbestos or um, they had meth in them or something like that. There were some other ones that were hiding in plain sight. And the best way I could describe this as one example, this isn't the only way to do it, but one example of this was grandma's property. So you'd go find a property that was in a 30-year-old neighborhood um, that was in perfect grandma condition. It was like you walked in, and it was like pristine 1980. Um, Everything looked brand new. You know, there was like plastic runners on the ground where grandma decided she didn't want to walk on the carpet so she would do that. You know, like she would never use the kitchen. Like it just, everything looked exactly perfect. But it was really outdated. And so a lot of times those properties were were fix and flip opportunities where you could go in and you could update things that was 1980s grandma into modern day stuff and there was a big enough spread where you could make those work. And so they were like sort of like unusual fix and flip opportunities that not everyone was thinking of. And that was one of the examples that we would use. Because I would take, I'm not going to go off on too much tangent, but I would download all the data from the MLS and then we would actually run analysis on them in order to find properties that had below normal price per square foot or we would look at what the taxes were and try to find undervalued properties that way. So there were a bunch of different things we were doing that way. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, Adding value isn't always what you immediately think of when you think of fix and flip. It could be these more unusual grandma-type properties as one example, or it could be a liquidity issue where someone needs to sell very quickly and they're willing to sell at a big enough discount, but you could almost put it on the market as is and sell it for a higher price, and the only reason that they were willing to sell it for you wasn't that there was anything wrong with the property. You didn't need to add value and you didn't need to go in and fix stuff up. It was you were adding value by adding liquidity to the marketplace. Does that make sense? that it's not always just swinging a hammer, or replacing carpet, doing kitchens, doing upgrades. Make sense, everybody? Okay, cool. So typically, we're buying properties, adding value in some form or another, then we're reselling properties, and it is primarily used as a means of generating income. You know, we'll have a slide here in a second where we talk about real estate investing versus real estate entrepreneurship, and this is a real estate entrepreneurship type activity. You are in the, you're in the business related to real estate, you're someone who's going in and you're trying to find deals, do labor, whether it's yours or managing someone else doing the hammer swinging, par- carpet replacing, upgrading kitchens, or, or, um, or, or managing someone, or doing it yourself or managing someone. And so you're in the business. It's an entrepreneurship activity. So it's a job. You're getting paid to do this labor. Um, so realize if this is the, t- this is like the class that you want to do, this is the strategy you want to do, that uh, you are really looking at a job. This is not like a passive wealth building strategy, like a lot of the other ones we've taught so far, like buy and hold, or nomad, or house hacking, or things of that nature. Make sense, everybody? OK, cool. Um, I have run a really informal class. If you've got questions, go ahead and interrupt. I probably will ask you to use the microphone. And Rachel has volunteered to be the microphone runner tonight. She told me earlier that she said, I would love to do that job. So yeah, because yeah, you're going to ask a lot of questions anyway. All right, so exceptions. So I'm going to go over what I think is a generalized way of doing by, uh, I'm sorry, doing a fixed flip, kind of quick turning properties, but there's all these weird exceptions and there's no way I could cover every single one of them. So, you know, if you come to me and you say, but what about this, James, yeah, I'm sure there's some exceptions to that and feel free to bring them up if you want to. But it, like, this is not the only way to think about it, but I've tried to think about it from a pretty comprehensive way and I've tried to do it in a more, most common sort of way rather than these really uh, obscure cases. Okay. And also beware. Just because you think that there's, there's, you don't think there's a chance that X can happen, doesn't mean that it won't happen. So this is designed to be like a starting point discussion to help you make better investing decisions on your own with additional knowledge. But make sure you do your own research. Do not rely on me solely um, as your kind of like business person who taught you how to do this. All right. Quick turn and flipping variations. So I listed out what I consider to be the four major quick turning, flipping, kind of like strategies, variations on this strategy. So there's the, the most traditional one, um, that's buying a property, adding value, and reselling as quickly as possible. You know, a lot of times you'll go in, you'll get a hard money loan, you'll, you'll do rehab on the property, you upgrade the kitchen, replace flooring, and then you'll immediately put up the sell with the intention of making a profit from doing all that. But then there's three other ones as well. So, I classify another one as live-in flips. And live-in flips for me is when you go, you buy a property, as an owner-occupant, you move into the property, and you get owner-occupant financing in most cases. So a lot of times you're buying like a property with 5% down, or a 3.5% down FHA loan, or 3.5% down FHA 203k loan, which is like the rehab version of the FHA loan that allows you to finance the purchase and also the repairs, or the conventional version of that. There's a a conventional 5% down rehab loan as well. Um, or you do like a you know, USDA nothing down loan or a VA loan with nothing down, and you buy a property with the intention of, over the next year or so, doing your fix-up on the property with the intention of after a year selling it. That's what a live-in flip is to me. You move in the property, do the fix-up while you live in the property, offer your due to work in your spare time. This is like a second job. That's really what it is. You know, after you get done with your regular job, you come home and you start fixing up the property. There's a variation on this, and I call it the two-year tax advantage live-in flips, or, or slow flips. So the first live-in flip is like you're doing it at a reasonable time. You know, technically, when you get the loan for an owner-occupant, you agree to live in the property for a year. So it's going to be hard for you to do it faster than a year. And there's an incentive, a tax incentive for you to wait a year, and that if you wait more than a year, you have uh, long-term capital gains on any gain you had on the property. So that's a 15% tax rate, usually, unless you're in some weird tax situation. But usually a 15% tax rate for... Uh, after a year's point for doing the gain on that. Um, but sometimes you'll say, hey, listen, I want to go and buy a property, and I want to live in it two out of the last five years because I don't want to pay any taxes, um, any capital gain taxes on the sale. And so you buy a property very similar to the regular live in flip, except you move in with the intention of staying there two years. And the reason you do that is instead of having to pay that 15% capital gains tax rate uh, after you've lived there for a year, you decide if you wait another year, then I can do it and not pay any tax on the gain at all. Okay, so that's one of the reasons why you do that. Um, and then the final one, it's a variation on the regular flip. So the traditional flip, you're buying a property, um, usually getting you know, hard money loan or paying cash or something like that, and then you're doing the fix up and then you're reselling it. With the partnership flip, you're gonna partner with the seller. So instead of you going and getting hard money loan or some other type of financing, you go to the seller and say, look, Mr. Seller, your house needs some updating and I can get you more than what you would net if you partnered with me and do this. And I will go in here and I will pay for out of my own pocket to have contractors come in and do all the work on the property. And then when we sell it, you'll pay back all the money we paid for the upgrades. We'll pay off your loan and we'll split the profit. And I think we could do better than that. And so the idea behind a partnership flip is instead of you buying the property from the seller, doing the work and selling it, you partner with the seller, you do the work, and then you both sell it and you split the profit in some form or another. So that's what a partnership flip is. Okay. Any questions on the four strategies? You guys knew about all those? Did you get, you had the microphone? Yeah, it's on. yeah, it should be on. It doesn't well, project your voice. Yeah, just so required. with the um, partnership flips, how is that price difference determined, the spread between what it would have sold for before and then after? Is it just a, based on a, a, a pre-renovation um, appraisal? Or how, how is that price determined? It's completely negotiated between you and the seller. So you can structure these any way you want. It's whatever you can get a seller to agree with, right? So um, I don't think a lot of times you're talking about, you know, this is what you would have gotten, uh, although maybe that's part of your presentation. You no, know, this is what you would have gotten. If, I, if you hire a real estate agent, it's going to be 6%. And, you know, most buyers are going to come in. They're going to negotiate the price down. And so you got another 2 or 3% that way. And you got your share closing costs. And so by the time everything's said and done, you know, you're talking at, you know, a 13% discount from where you thought you were going to be. And so what I do it, we're going to be able to do this. I'm a real estate agent. I can sell the property for us. So we're going to save some money there. I've got you know, contractors and everyone else who could do all this work. And I get discount because I give them a lot of business. And then you go in there and you sell yourself as to why you can go and do it and why you can make them more money than if you did it yourself. So you do whatever the negotiation is for yourself to do that presentation. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay, cool. Any other questions on this? Yeah, good mic. Thank you. I've been seeing some houses, uh, like say in Kansas City, yeah. Missouri, and they're really cheap. Yep. Um, have you done any where you can do a um, not an assumable loan, a um, what do you call it, subject to loan, mm-hmm. where you just take over the property mm-hmm. and then make an agreement that after you've done you're done fixing the property, you will then pay them, um, but in the meantime, their mortgages being covered. Sure. Yeah, you can structure it that way. That's just a variation on the partnership flip, right? You're going to go in there and you're going to say, look, it's not even subject to. I mean, you honestly could do it where you just say, look, I'll pay the amount that your mortgage is. If you want to do this, it doesn't have to be done this way. But you could say, I'll pay the amount that your mortgage is. I'll rent the property from you while we're doing the rehab or you know we're partnering on this and so i'll just cover the the holding costs for that but i don't think you have to unless it's a person who's in a distressed situation and they would otherwise lose the property so okay. you don't have to offer that but it's it's a way you could do it it's a, it's another tool in the tool well, it's tool chest less coming down like, i mean less money you have to put up front because you could put that into the rehab Right. I don't think so. I think okay. that if you have the seller pay for the holding costs while you're holding the property, I, don't think, I think that's actually better than you coming up making the monthly payments. Say that again. Yeah, market? so you, the seller still owns the property in the partnership flip version, right. and so they're making the payment. So I think you coming out and volunteering to make the payment, I think that's actually worse for you. Mm. Make sense? Yeah. Yeah. All right, any other questions on this? you have a question or are you just holding the mic? Okay. okay. I, I thought you were grabbing for it like you were going to ask questions. Okay, cool. All right, so is, is this quick turning flip model, is it more real estate investing, where you're taking money, you're investing in something, doing very little work, and expecting to get a return on your investment? Or is this real estate entrepreneurship, where you're putting in manual labor with the expectation of making a profit on your labor? What do you think? Is quick flipping, you know, quick turning properties, flipping properties, is that more investing or is that more labor? Labor, absolutely. right. So this is one of the obvious ones where before some of the other ones were like, you know, you're doing a little bit of work, but you're putting money in the deal. This one I think is very clearly on the side of real estate entrepreneurship. So for flipping properties, most folks are typically investing their time and often a little bit of money. So it's mostly an entrepreneurial activity. Okay. So money required. I would love to be able to tell you that you can go flip properties with nothing down, no money out of pocket at all. I I think that while that can happen, it's really, really hard to do. Okay, so in most cases, though, here's what you're going to need to do. First of all, you're going to need to do um, some type of marketing to find or acquire the deal. So, uh, marketing to find or acquire the deal—it's especially true if you're wanting to do these partnership flips, where you got to go find a seller before they've listed their property in the MLS. You know, before they have listed it for sale by owner in a lot of cases, although I guess you could find some of those as well. But really you're trying to find somebody who is way upstream of listing their property so that you can do that. And you usually do that through marketing. So a lot of times that marketing is paid. So you'll need some money for marketing in order to do that, um, especially with partnership flips. And that's, it is true somewhat to, you know, deeply distressed properties that need rehab, although you can find those in the MLS as well. But most of the time for marketing you're going to be doing these kind of like partnership ones. You'll also need money for down payment and closing costs. So when you acquire property, you're probably gonna have some closing costs. Could you go find like a hard money lender who's willing to loan you 100% of the purchase price and they'll roll your closing costs in and they'll roll your upfront points in and they'll have like you know no monthly payment due on the property while you're doing it? Yes, you can if you can get a good enough deal where you're doing that, but I think that would very limit the deals that you could do. You'd have to really only do the creme of the creme, the kind of like top deals where you can get the biggest discount and where you can make that work. And I think if you want to do more deals, you want to do more deal flow, you'll probably need some money for some type of down payments. So in some cases, you might need to be able to do it with no down payment. For example, you bring in a money partner or you do a partnership flip or you find an exceptional deal and using hard money lender, it doesn't require a down payment. So those are like the dream cases if you're trying to do this with no money. Um, in most cases though, you will need a down payment. There's a lot of hard money lenders that they're like, I want you to have some skin in the game, or I'm willing to go up to whatever this loan to value is, you're not able to quite get a property at that loan to value, but it's still a profitable deal to do, and so you probably need to have a little bit of money in the deal if you do those. So in a lot of cases, you'll need that down payment. Some hard money lenders may require anywhere between zero and 20% down. I've not seen any more than 20, but it's possible you could find someone who's more than 20%. Um, Or conventional loans, you could do these kind of conventional non-owner occupant loans, Um, As little as 15% down with PMI, although it has to be in good shape, it has to be a a property that you can get a conventional mortgage on. 20% or more for properties that qualify for conventional financing, and not all will qualify. So if it doesn't have the basic stuff that a property needs, the kitchen doesn't work, doesn't have bathrooms, things like that, or it's uninhabitable, you're going to have a hard time getting a conventional loan. But grandma's property, you can get a conventional loan on, because it looks perfect. You went and looked at the property, you're like, there's nothing wrong with this, I can move in. Okay. Um, also, you can do live-in flips, where you can do that with nothing down. A VA loan or a USDA loan, those are nothing down loan programs. Or an FHA loan, 3.5% down. And there's an FHA loan that allows you to do rehab costs included with the loan. That's the FHA 203k loan. And then that would be 3.5% down. And they'll loan you um, repair money, too, with 3.5% down. Uh, just a side note, you cannot do your own repairs with the 203k. Uh, you have to hire a contractor. That's part of the loan contingency. They, they kind of like do it out and pay the contractor directly. Um, or you can do 3% or 5% down conventional loans. And there are versions of conventional loans that also allow you to do repair money as well. And then I think that's it for the live-in flips. Um, some flippers may opt to use their own cash or cash-like equivalent. And what I mean by cash-like equivalent is you own a property free and clear, or you have a HELOC on another property, you could go access your own money and use it like it was cash, even though you're just borrowing from yourself. Okay? So, some flippers may opt to use their own cash or cash like equivalent instead of paying hard money lenders to improve profitability. So, instead of the, you paying the hard money lender 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 15, 20%, whatever they're charging you plus points, um, you could decide hey, look, instead of paying them that, I'm going to get paid that because I'm going to use my own cash and I'll save that money and so it just adds to my overall profitability. Okay? So, for down payment, that's kind of like all the different stuff related to that. In addition to money to acquire the deal, down payment, and closing costs, you also need repair or rehab money. So, you know, some hard money letters may loan you rehab money, especially if you buy it at a big enough discount. But in most cases, you're going to be really close. You're going to need to come out of pocket for a lot of that rehab money. Now, some people will opt to use some type of credit card, HELOC, or something like that, or they'll you will go buy from Home Depot on a Home Depot credit card, and they'll do their own labor. So they're trying to get creative in order to minimize the amount of money they have out of pocket. But for the most part, you're going to need to come up with some type of rehab, uh, repair money to do that. Uh, holding costs. So a lot of times, even if you do a hard money lender, they're going to want you to make payments. A lot of times it's interest only payments uh, on the loan. Some of them will do like You know, we won't do payments for the first six months, it's already rolled into the cost of the loan, or maybe they'll add it to the loan balance. Well, they won't require you to make monthly payments on it. But not all hard money lenders are like that. And so you'll have some holding costs on the loan while doing the rehab, and once you've done the rehab, marketing the property for sale. So you may have three month rehab period, or four month rehab, or six month rehab, and then after that you have two or three or four months in order to market the property, and then wait for it to close before you can get paid. So you might have three, four, five, six months of holding costs between rehab period and marketing period in order to do that. Does that make sense, to everybody? OK. Uh, and then marketing or staging costs to sell or hiring a real estate professional who could do that for you. So you don't have to be the one to do the marketing costs of you know, get it in MLS and put up the signs and do yard signs and you know, get it out and distribute flyers and print up flyers and floor plans and photos and all that other stuff or staging of the property. You can hire a real estate professional to do that, but realize that's a cost that's usually coming out of the sale if you're not doing it yourself. And then finally, well, I guess it's not I guess it's finally, reserves. So, you should not be doing flipping properties without reserves. I don't know how many clients like top-notch professional flippers that they get into a property thinking the rehab is going to be $20,000, $30,000, $50,000 and ultimately find out that it's two times that. You know, they they were they thought that they knew what they were getting into. They get in the house and they find out a whole bunch of things that they didn't know about and they're unwilling to sell a product that they were, that they know has problems and that they didn't fix, and so you need to have reserves to take care of those things, and you probably need to have reserves if this thing takes a lot longer than you thought it was going to take. Um, you know, you buy in a property and you thought you're going to be rehab is going to be three months and you're going to be out in three months and it's not under contract by three months and so you got to hold it for six months or whatever it is. So you need to have reserves just like you do with any other strategy, um, but I think a lot of people do not think about reserves when they think about money required to do these. So in an ideal world, can you do this with zero dollars? Maybe. I mean, I think that's hard to do. I think that's hard to do. And I did model it with you doing it with zero dollars. I mean, I kind of gave you the benefit of the doubt when I do the quantitative modeling at the end of the class, but I think you'd be hard pressed to do this with no money. So I, I think the more you have, the more, the more deals you can do, the, the different types of deals you can do, uh, which makes you, uh, you know, just better in this business overall. Any questions on that? Oh, I have one other thing I have in here. Oh, some people will borrow some of these expenses, like the repairs, rehab, marketing, staging. Um, It is very difficult to borrow down payment. So if you're thinking, okay, I'm going to need 10% down, it's really, really hard to borrow that. I'm not going to go into detail on this, but you could borrow it from yourself in a really twisted, messed up way. (laughs) And I'm going to tell you this, but I'm not going to go into detail. You'll have to really think about this and you're going to figure it out. But imagine you know you want to do flipping. This is really messed up. You, pre- you shouldn't do this. Just warning, don't do this, but I'm gonna tell you how to do it. So imagine for a minute, you know you got three months or six months before you're gonna to have to do this flip deal, right? And you know that you don't have the down payment. But you're spending money on groceries and you know, car payment, all the other bills that you normally have. You could, not that I would encourage you to do this, but instead of taking the cash that you would normally use for groceries, and do your car payment or anything else, you could actually charge these regular living expenses on your credit card, roll up a credit card balance, while the cash balance in your account is also growing, but the cash thing you could actually use for down payments were before you could not use the credit card. Now, you'd be able to, you need to qualify with your debt-to-income ratio because you've got to cover that debt and stuff too, and I'm not going to go into how much detail on this because I think it adds a lot of extra risk if you do it this way, but if you're like desperate, you know, that is one strategy that you probably could do, which as soon as I say it, I regret telling you. But I did tell you don't do it. I did tell you not to do it. So, but that is a way to, to kind of get around the, the thing if you don't have down payment money. Have you done it when you What's that? Have you done it when you started? I bought a property on a credit card. So one of my earliest properties that I purchased, I, uh, they had like this crazy write yourself a cash advance check dealio. And it was like $1.99 for nine months or something like that. And so I just wrote myself a check for like $58,000. And I bought a property and did rehab on it. And so you could do it that way. I mean, or partner with somebody. Right? But you know, you be the person who finds a deal and runs the deal. And someone else comes in, and they sign for the hard money loan. And they provide the money. And you, you kind of build up to it. I mean, I think that's another way to do it, which we'll talk about in a partnership class. All right, any questions on money required? Helpful? Nice, cool. So credit required. So um, often you're going to use a hard money loan for the initial purchase, not always. And most hard money lenders are going to look at your credit score in some form or another, you know, you'll, you'll hear like, you know, you could buy this, you you, could, you know, the late night TV guys are like, you know, you could do these deals where, you know, we're not going to look at your credit. Hard money lenders, they really care about the property. They're doing a, a collateral loan on the property where the property is the security for the loan. So it doesn't matter where your credit is. You could have filed bankruptcy or foreclosure, you know, or, you know, have a zero credit score and you can get these loans. Maybe, maybe there's a hard-money lender who's willing to do that, but I think the overwhelming majority of hard-money lenders, especially the ones with the more reasonable rates, are going to want to look at your credit score and make sure that you're able to do the deal, get the deal done, they have confidence in you to do it, and credit score is one of the ways that they can measure that. That Make sense? Um, If you're going to do conventional financing, if you're going to go in and buy a property and do like one of these conventional loans or something like that, um, typical credit score for that is 640. Oftentimes the better credit you have, Uh, the better your interest rate's gonna be on those. And then for these kind of less common situations, the live-in flips, it's owner-occupant financing. And you can go as low as 580 with the FHA loan in order to do your credit score with that. There may even be some exceptions where you can go lower than that with really unusual exceptional situations. But go talk to a lender, they'll tell you the stuff. Um, So that would include stuff like FHA, including the 203k loan, VA financing, USDA, conventional, including the conventional rehab loans, uh, provided the property can qualify. So the property needs to be able to be in good enough condition where you could buy it that way and purchase the property. Uh, with a partnership flip, you may not need credit score at all. If, you're, if your partner is going to qualify you for the loan, you don't need to do it. So in that case, it may not be required at all. And if you're buying without a loan, all cash credit score is not required. And realize, just because I wrote these numbers up here, you can't go to your lender and say, you know, James told me that it was this number. You, you need to ask them what the qualification is for their loan products at that time, because they may change. Um, I mean, loans are changing right now a lot. In case you didn't hear the news, interest rates rose by 0.75% today. So another big jump today. All right, any questions on credit required? Sweet. Skills required. So the primary skills required for flipping properties are, number one, you got to be able to find deals. Got to be able to find deals. That's a skill that's required. You also got to be able to estimate rehabs or know someone who can. You either got to be able to do it yourself or you got to be able to get a contractor in there um, who can estimate the rehabs for you. Got to be able to figure out acquisition financing, hard money lending, private lending, you know, the conventional financing, live-in flip financing, whatever it is that you're using to acquire the property you need to know about the financing, you need that as a skill. Then you need to either be able to do the rehab yourself, swing a hammer, do the fix up yourself, or hire people and manage a team to be able to do the rehab and then you need to be able to sell the property. Those are the primary strategies, the skills required in order to do quick turn flipping properties. And of course the skills of rehab can vary depending on whether you're doing it yourself or you're gonna hire someone to do it. If you're gonna hire someone to do it, you need to be good at management. You need to be able to pick, hire managers, stay on top of them, make sure they get the job done right, know how to pay them, know how to structure all that. And then selling properties may be you hiring someone else to do it or you doing it yourself. So another way, you either need to be managing them or doing it yourself. So different skills. Any questions on skills required? All right, stability. So flipping properties is very actively stable. I finally looked up the guy's name. For those that come to other classes and you're like, James, you should know his name. Shane Parrish from Farnham Street came out with a blog post where he talked about this concept of something being um, actively stable or passively stable. And I went and I re-looked at the blog post just so I could do it. And the example he used was um, a boat. Um, If you have a boat and you don't do anything, the boat is just kind of like naturally stable. Just sits there, floats, bounces around a little bit. But if you're not actively doing something, it's not like you're going to drown. But a jet fighter is something that is actively stable, where if you're not actually actively using the controls, you're going to die. Um, So real estate investing, when I kind of thought about this, I was like, oh, this kind of applies to real estate investing in a weird way. I think real estate investing overall is actively stable in general. If you don't do anything with your property, eventually you'll lose your property if you don't pay taxes on it. But there's variations. There's like a spectrum inside real estate investing. For example, if you go get a um, interest-only loan that has a balloon at the end, If you don't do something about the balloon at the end, that's worse than if you have a 30-year amortizing loan that's going to pay itself off over 30 years. That is less actively stable than an interest-only loan with a balloon. So on the spectrum of, you know is this like a more active thing where you have to really pay attention to it, or if it's more passive, even though it's it's active because it's real estate in general, um, I think that flipping properties is more active. It is on the far end of you having to be actively engaged with the property almost daily until the job is done and the property is sold. Maybe a little bit less while the property is for sale, but definitely while you're rehabbing the property, you're managing that team. Unless you really have a good team in place and you can trust those guys. But for the most part, you're, you're on top of that. That's definitely a, a significant job. OK, any questions on stability? Cool. So scalability. You know, Is flipping properties going to make you Elon Musk rich? Probably not, right? It's not super scalable. I mean, there's some advantages to it because you can get big chunks of money. But it's not like wealth building. And I got a really good slide. I think it's the second to last slide tonight, where I talk to you and I compare how much money you make buying a rental property versus how much money you make flipping properties. And it's an interesting comparison. I'll kind of show you that. But as far as scalability goes, um, flipping properties, it's often limited to deal flow. You've got to find enough good enough deals where you can buy them at a discount, put in the value, and then resell them. Um, so from that perspective, it's harder to scale. It usually slows down your acquisition speed. It can be done with a relatively small amount of capital that can usually be reused after a deal. So you go in there, you put up some money, put up some rehab money. In most cases, you're getting all that money back, and so you could reuse it on the next deal that you do. So from that way, it is scalable, right? Because it's not like you need to dump 20% into a property and leave it there as you do with like buying whole properties. So you could reuse the money and kind of keep cycling it in through. Um, Since it requires a lot of manual labor, it's typically not considered a scaling wealth building strategy directly. But many people will use the profit from their fix and flip deals in order to acquire long-term wealth with rental properties or Nomad or house hacking or whatever in parallel. So they'll go ahead and use money from their flips in order to fund down payments for doing other strategies. Does that make sense? Okay. Any questions on scalability? Cool. Risk exposure. So, I think flipping properties has a medium risk rating. And, and for those that watched, um, so those that were here for other classes, you're like, James, does your risk rating ever change off medium? Turns out Burr was, was high last week. So, uh, you'll see that when you see the podcast episode. But um, so, th- a lot of these are medium. And, and there are different reasons why this one's medium, too, because flipping is different risk than I think that buy and hold, Nomad, and house hacking had. Um, and it shares. One of the reasons Burr had so much risk is it combines both the strategies. It's got all the risk of doing rehab in it, and then it's got all the risk of doing buy and hold, because it's both strategies. And so that's one of the reasons why it's high. It's got twice as much. Um, So for risk tonight, tonight, though, for uh, flipping properties, fixing flips, there's rehab risk. So you're going to do your rehab on a property, and a hurricane hits, doesn't hit your property, but the price of lumber triples. Well, that's an additional risk. Or your contractors get all pulled off, to do another project. Or um, you, know, you expected to do uh, a rehab in the kitchen, once you kind of pull the kitchen out, you realize there's mold, and now you got to do mold remediation in the property. Or um, you happen to test for meth, because after you buy the property, you are talking to the neighbor like, I'm finally glad someone bought that meth house, and that those meth dealers are no longer here. And you're like, what? So I mean, there's stuff like that that happens. So you have all the rehab risks, although that could happen with anything. Uh, interest rate risk for your buyers while rehabbing. So imagine you bought a uh, rehab property, and you were getting ready to put it on the market about two months ago, and interest rates just went through the roof then. So now it's much, much harder for you to sell your property because there's an interest rate risk for your buyers while you were doing your rehab. Uh, price decline during rehab risk. So sometimes markets turn. You know, there was a, a market was going a certain way and then all of a sudden it shifted, and now it's much harder for you to sell where the prices started to go down. And you're holding the property thinking, I can do better, I can do better, and the market's kind of dropping out as you're holding on. And uh, you know, you, maybe you should have accepted that $5,000 discounted offer that you got the first day because that was your best offer because now the price is $20,000 below where you were. So there's stuff like that that happens. And for longer flips, like two-year slow flips, this is an extended. It might be called an additional price decline during ownership risk because while you're holding the property for two years, it's possible the market changes or interest rates change or things like that and prices drop pretty considerably during that period of time. And then, of course, your credit is at risk because if something happens and you're unable to make the payments on the loan, you're unable to sell the property, and you've got to give the property back to the lender or something like that, then you could, uh, you could have a credit risk there. And then in addition to those risks, for partnership risks, if you're doing partnership flips, rather, your reputation is at risk right? because you're sort of doing something with someone else and they're expecting you to perform. And then you have all the generic partnership risks that you have there disagreements with your partner. He said this, you, you thought it was gonna go one way, they sue you, there's like a disagreement over how to split the profits or what was said or who's who supposed to do what. So you've got all those with additional partnership flip risks. Any questions on risk exposure? Cool. So profit speed. So how quickly are you getting profit and what's the general size of partnerships? Like what's the profit margin you're doing there? So how quickly you make money, with partnerships, it's relatively quick. Usually you're buying a property and once you sell it, six months later, nine months later, a year later, sometimes a little bit faster than that, um, you're getting your profit out. And so while flipping properties, you could typically start seeing profit within six months, typically after rehab and sale. You You may capture some natural appreciation you're holding the property and the market's going up like it's been going up the last year you know 15% a year whatever it's been going crazy up you get to capture this sort of natural appreciation while you're holding the property and you're rehabbing it's going to sell for more than you originally thought because the market's going up while you did this and I will tell you some some flippers actually will factor that into their offer they'll be like look the market's market's going really strong I think it's going to continue going strong for the next six months Um, I know there's this particular seller is going to get offers from a whole bunch of other investor flippers, and I really want this deal because my I got to get my guys busy or whatever it is, and so I'm willing to factor in some of that natural appreciation. I'm going to say I'm going to sell it. It's comping out right now at 400. I'm going to pretend it's going to comp out at 420 because I think it's going to go up 20k over the next six months that I hold it. So some of them are doing that. Um, I don't know if that's prudent, but I know I will tell you that that's how some of them think. Having worked with a lot of them. Uh, So you may capture some natural appreciation, inflation, likely to capture forced appreciation as well. Forced appreciation is the value you add when you do the work that you do to the property or your liquidity or whatever it is you're doing there. So that's like the forced appreciation part of it. Um, So how much do you make? It varies widely. And everyone's got their own metrics. Um, And everyone's expenses and holding costs and costs of money and their overhead and everything else is different. If you're running a really lean ship, maybe you make more profit. If you have a lot of overhead and a lot of stuff going on or you have really expensive money, maybe you make less. But I think a, a lot of investors will target $25,000 minimum, net profit after everything. And some of them will bump that up to 10% of the sale price of the property as like a way to deal with properties becoming more expensive. So you know, if you're doing a lower cost property, a lot of them will say twenty-five dollars minimum or some of them will even do less than that, but I think 25 is a very common number you hear. $25,000, profit minimum after all my expenses, net of everything. Or if you're doing like a $400,000 property, maybe you say I want 40K. Or some people, in order to get a deal done in a really hot market, they'd rather have 25K than not get the deal, maybe they actually bump it down to 25 in those cases. Okay? Okay, and by the way, 25K net of all expenses, not taxes. So most people are going to do that number and they're not going to take into account their tax obligations from that number. Um, so if you're looking at the returns, this is typically the return quadrants we use uh, when we're looking at a property. So you'll get some appreciation, both that natural appreciation while you have the property uh, from inflation and then also any forced appreciation. You're usually not getting any cash flow. In fact, cash flow is probably gonna be negative at your holding costs. Debt pay down. A lot of times your hard money lender is going to have an interest only loan or even a negatively amortizing loan, which means that the payments are getting on and the interest is accruing while you're holding on to the property. Um, So debt paid out is usually gonna be either zero or negative, depending on whether it's, you're just making interest-only payments or that. And then you're not usually getting tax benefits while you're holding the property because you're not usually renting it out. So usually there's nothing there for those. Uh, Any questions on profit speed? All right, no questions on profit speed? Profit size? Okay, cool. So finding deals. So you can find these deals in the MLS. Um, you can find these deals from for sale by owners. And there's really two groups of for sale by owners. Those for sale by owners that are currently actively marketing their property. Like people that put the for sale by owner, sign their yard, put up their um, property on websites like Zillow or um, Craigslist or other things like that. Um, and then you have the hidden for sale by owners. There are properties that are for sale uh, by owner. They're not listed with an agent, but they could be properties that, you know, they haven't put out any advertising. You need to go do postcards or pay-per-click or do some networking or whatever in order to find those sellers in order to be able to find those deals that way. And then the most other most common way to find these deals is wholesalers. Wholesalers are typically people that are putting out the marketing in order to find the deals. They're marking them up by putting a, their profit on the deal, and then they're usually assigning their contract and allowing you to close on it and buy it directly from you. So those are really the three most common ways. You can find these deals with auctions, like foreclosure auctions or um, IRS auctions or things of that nature. You can also find banks that have what's called real estate owned. It's properties they've taken back in foreclosure that they have on their books that they own. Um, and that a lot of times they'll have a list of properties that are real estate owned. Um, You got to find the right bank that's got real estate owned. It's it's a pretty small list, and I think most of them are not doing this right now. But I mean, there's probably some banks that still have real estate owned, Um, especially as the number of foreclosures increase. Right now, the number of foreclosures is like at all-time lows. And then finally, tax liens, tax deeds, and tax sales. You sometimes can find a deal that way. Any questions on finding deals? All right, cool. So, searching for fixer-upper deals in the MLS. So, t- so, I'll just give you a couple hints about how to find these. There's lots of different ways to do it. But uh, one of the ways is to search for these types of terms, like handyman special, the word handyman, the word special, the word fixer, the word fix, the word TLC, the words needs work, mold, asbestos, and I would do all the different wrong spellings of asbestos because i know you guys have a hard time spelling it and real estate agents do too so uh, just do lots of variations on that damage fire smoke water damage all those types of words in order to try to find these inside the mls and you're going to come up with a lot of false positives right like someone's gonna you're gonna do a search for fire and it's gonna say you know backyard fire pit and that's not really what you're looking for right you're looking for fire damage or something like that but you'd rather get the false positive and be able to say, okay, I'm going to pass on this, than to miss one that really had fire damage. Or meth. I don't think meth's on there. It's another one. What's that? Will they put that in there and a meth house? Sometimes. Yeah, you're supposed to disclose. Yeah. yeah the question was, uh, will they put in there that it's a meth house? Yeah, if, if they have meth and it has not been remediated, they're supposed to disclose that to you. So, yeah, um, putting it in there definitely could come up with some properties. Quick question. If they don't disclose it can and you purchase it, Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll say it for the mic. So the question was, if you buy the property and they didn't disclose it to you, can you sue them? You could sue anyone for any reason, right? I mean, so, so yes, you can sue them. Um, you know, now you got to go prove that they knew. So good luck with that. If they really did know and it was obvious and, you know, there was evidence of it, they tried to have it remediated or they, uh, you know, they, 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 were, they were the ones that did the math themselves uh, and you could prove that somehow, I mean, yes, you could probably do that. So, here in Northern Colorado, I'll kind of go off topic here for a minute, here in Northern Colorado, if somebody has a house that was uh, contaminated with meth, and uh, they, they do remediate it to the state level, they do not then need to disclose anymore that it once was uh, contaminated with meth. And it says so right in the contract. So just realize that if the property did have meth, it was remediated to the state standards, uh, they no longer need to disclose that it had meth at one point. which. I'm not sure I personally would like to live in a house, even if it was remediated that had meth at one point. Okay. Um, I'll add one more thing to this. It's not on the slide. But um, so I was reminded of this when I was telling you the story at the beginning of the class, which I didn't really intend to tell you, but I I guess I did anyway. So one of the other things we would do is I looked at all the different ways. One of the things that I did, uh, where do I start the story? One of the things I did to try to find uh, fix and flip deals is I went through and I looked at, I don't know, whatever it was, 20 years of MLS data, and I looked for pairs of transactions. So somewhere where a property was purchased in the MLS, and within six months later, that property was sold again. And so then I would go find, okay, this was a pair of transactions for the exact same address. And so I'd find that pair, and then I would have what I would refer to as, like, you know, the fix and flip, the pre-fix and flip house, and then the post-fix and flip house, and I could do a whole bunch of data analysis on that. I can go look at, you know, what's the spread, um, you know, wh- like how long were the properties listed for, how long they stayed on the market, what the typical discount was when they made an offer on the first one, what the typical premium or discount was when they resold the property, how long it took to resell. So I can look at a whole bunch of data. But one of the things I wanted to do, now that I had these fix and flip pairs. Um, I wanted to go look at all the initial transactions and try to find out ways that I might be able to identify those that were not obvious. And one of the things that came out of this, it wasn't the only thing, but it was a, it's a pretty strongly correlated uh, thing, and that was the ratio of the list price of the house, what they were trying to sell it for, and what the taxes were on the property. Because taxes are a proxy for value. So taxes sort of represents what the assessor believes, based on how they run their own comps, what the property is worth. So if you look in a neighborhood and you could see, you know, this has taxes of $2,000 and the is worth $400. This one has taxes of, you know, $2,200 and it's worth, you know, $440 or whatever it is. If you find discrepancies, properties where the ratio of taxes to purchase price, and you could do it either way, you know, one divided by the other, um, and you could do either one you want to do, just measure it the right way. Um, if you find ones that are outliers to that, That could be a first pass, even if it didn't have any of these special keywords in it. And it would otherwise seem like, you know, without you going and running comps on every property, this is a really quick way to whittle down that list. And so you could export the list of properties in the MLS if your MLS allows you to do that, and then do a ratio, you know, download the spreadsheet where they have taxes, property taxes, and then do the, the thing for list price, and then do some type of calculation, and then sort them by that, and then look at the top. 5 or 10 or 20 or whatever properties that are or just go through and order by those and that was actually a relatively good way having looked at data for a whole bunch of these pairs of fix and flip properties for you to go identify properties that might possibly be undervalued in some way or another or you could also find properties where the taxes were abnormally low because there was some type of homestead exemption or senior exemption or something like that and so you find some of those too but you know some of those are also grandma's properties right like the homestead exemption where it's been kept pristine for 30 years that is another way to kind of identify grandma so i'm not sure that's the worst way to look for her. any questions on that not covered not intended to be covered topic sweet you guys got a whole bunch of bonuses so market conditions Oh, wait, question. Oh, dumb question. Well, I don't know about those. I didn't say there were no dumb questions. I didn't say you could ask them um, questions. But go ahead. So, okay, so I know we can look up, I know how to look up property tax information on homes, but sure? can you look up if it's homestead or senior discount? Is that listed on? I don't know. I've never okay. looked it up that way. Okay, I, was just I, just, I sort them by the ratio of taxes, and that's how I'd look at them. Okay. And i wrote okay. software to do it. I wasn't even doing it manually. No, I understand that. I yeah. was just like, can you actually figure out that's why it's lower or not? That's one of the things I was trying to no, do. I no, don't, I don't. Maybe. You can call that in the assessor well, and see what they say. A certain yeah, I don't know. That. I never looked that up. They don't have to pay that much? Yeah. 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 All right, cool. Any other questions? All right, so market conditions. So what, where does this strategy sh- like shine? Like, what's the best market to do fix and flips in? So it's got to be a market where you can buy properties that need work at a discount. <laughs> All right, if, if, you're, if you're thinking you could do it in our current market, well, our current market six months ago, that's really hard to do. It's hard to buy any property without paying a premium over asking price and find a property that needs work. Can you still do it? Probably. There's exceptions to every rule, as I said. But it's much harder to do that. If you want to do any type of volume or scale, it's tricky to do. There are, there are other markets that are much easier to find distressed properties, properties that you could do fix and flip with. The thing, the other warning I'll add to you, I'll add about this is sometimes the reason you can get very distressed properties at a big discount is because it'd be really, really hard to sell them even if they were fixed up. So I think you want to find properties that you could both buy them at a discount and that you see ones that have been fixed up that are actually selling in that neighborhood and at a decent price. You got to look at the comps of what you could sell for in order to make sure you can determine those. All right, so uh, ideal market conditions where you can buy properties that need work at a discount, value add opportunities in some form, and then markets with strong demand. You definitely need some demand in order to do it. It's not enough to buy it at a discount. You also need to be able to sell it in a reasonable time for a reasonable price. It is challenging in low buyer demand markets. It's also challenging in very high buyer demand markets where it's hard to get a discount on anything. Any questions on that? Very cool. Uh, Accessibility or availability of deals. These can be hard deals to find, Um, not as hard as Burr Properties. Burr Properties are harder to find than fix-up. Why? Anyone know? Because Burr Properties, you need to both find a property that would qualify as a fixer-upper, but then it also has to be an amazing rental after you buy it and do the refi. So those are even harder to find. Fixer-uppers, you could buy properties that wouldn't be good rentals and sell those. So they can be hard to find, although slightly easier than Burr, I told you that. Watch out for strong availability. Might mean that it could be harder to sell in a reasonable time. And some markets are much easier than others. Harder, but you might be able to invest in remote markets to find these deals. So you can do fix and flip remotely. It is harder to do. Um, I've done some. And it, is, it requires different skills. You really need to have a good team in place on the other end to do it, or be willing to travel, or both. Um, but you can do it. So if your market, if you're like, I can't do these in my market, you know, first of all, I would test that assumption and see if it's just you and find out if other people are doing it. Um, and then if other people are doing it, then you've got to figure out like, how to change your strategy to do that. But if you're really, it's very, very difficult, there's hardly anyone doing it here in your market, then you should go perhaps, and you really want to do this strategy, which maybe you change, pick a different strategy altogether. But you could go do it in another market that this is a more reasonable strategy to do. Any questions on this? All right, cool. So we're using retirement accounts. Can you typically utilize flipping properties with self-directed retirement accounts? Yes, you can. It is harder to do because it limits the work you can typically do on it. Um, it is easier if you almost have like, you and another flipper almost offer each other to do the loans for themselves at like, some type of swap rate or something like that where you loan them money for their flip deals and they loan you money for your flip deals from your IRAs. Um, might be an easier way to kind of do that. Uh, it may also change the type of financing that you use. So it might be harder for you to do you know, certain types of loans by doing it that way. And uh, I think I covered all that. Any questions on financing? Yeah, I want to get mic to make it back. Thank you. But if you were able to do them through there, mm-hmm. theoretically, wouldn't you not have to pay any tax? Depends on. Or deferred. Yeah, it depends on your, your structure of your retirement account. I'd have to think it through. This is not my area of expertise. But yeah, I think I think you would have, yeah, if you did it inside the account, all the money had to go back into the account, I think that that goes into whatever the status that money already had. So if you were, you're gonna pay tax when you pull it out, it would be taxed at that point. If it was tax free when you pull it out like a Roth, then I think it would be like that too. Uh, there's some other weird rules too, like if you're doing, if you're financing stuff within there, if you're using this for down payments, there's a whole bunch of additional rules and. Like, I, I don't understand this stuff that well, but like U bits and things like that that I'm just not familiar with. So you'll need to get some professional guidance on that one. It's harder to do, much harder to do um, than you know, doing it with someone else's IRA. You can use someone else's IRA really easy. Okay, yeah. Any questions? Cool. So quantitative analysis. Now we're gonna get into numbers. Just right out of time. So flipping properties is a job. I want to point it out at the very beginning, because financially, this thing shows up like extra income in our modeling, right? You're not like, we're not modeling, you're buying a house and you're getting the debt pay down over that thing. So a lot of times they're interest only loans and you're not gonna have like appreciation happen while you're holding the property for six months because you know, you're already kind of baking that in there. So it really just shows up as like lumpy income you know, income that shows up like once every six months or, you know, once every nine months or whatever the period of time that you've gotten there. It just kind of like, poof, $25,000 shows up in your account because that's the net after all your expenses after you've done the deal and at whatever interval you have there. So that's how we model it, right? Because it's, it's lumpy income. It's, it's periodic, sometimes irregularly periodic, but I, you could do it as kind of periodic chunks, lumps of income, okay? So the other thing that's hard is when we compare flipping properties to all the other strategies we've covered so far, like buy and hold or nomad or house hacking, it's, an, it's already an unfair uh, comparison. Because in one case, you're working a regular 40 hour a week job, maybe you're kind of like leasing a property once every year or something like that to do the work, but with this, you've got like second job hours. So you're, you're, I'm kind of comparing one where you're not doing second job hours and you've got all this leisure time, and this other one where you're working a second job completely in order to do this, right? And so it's it's automatically an unfair advantage to kind of compare them, I and you'll see why. So I could I could take like one model of this thing and really spend two hours just going through all the different risk profiles and you know how this varies and what your income looks like and your kind of cash flow looks like and all this other stuff like just based on like one strategy. So um, tonight I'm just going to focus on financial independence, how long it takes you to achieve financial independence using strategy, but I could easily just go in and dig into all these other variations and how this really works and mechanics of it, which I just don't have time to do. Eventually they may be their own class for this particular strategy because it's not my primary thing. Like this is not my I don't know if you guys can tell, but this isn't my normal topic to teach, right? Like fix and flip. Um, I do have a lot of experience, especially helping clients. I don't do a lot of fix and flips myself. I've done a few. But this is like, I used to cater to this. This was my niche for clients doing it. And um, I did this for you know, several years doing it this way. But I don't know. This isn't my normal class that I, uh, topic that I teach. It's sort of like a secondary topic. So, So I don't know. Maybe I will teach more. Maybe I won't. Uh, it is naive to generalize these results. Don't think that you truly, deeply understand all the nuance from just this class. Right? Uh, you, you can't go out and you know, claim that you're a guru and expert and start teaching this based on the stuff that you learned in this one class. Okay? All right. So model flip, modeling flip income. So This is a, a specific issue that deals with the real estate financial planner. And I just want to bring it up to your attention. It probably doesn't come into play um, in this class, but it will come into play if you copy this scenario into your own account and you start playing with it. So, The issue is specific to the real estate financial planner software. You could model flipping income in one of two ways. The one way you could do it is you could say, I got lumpy income. I get a lump sum of $25,000. Maybe it's adjusted up for inflation every six months. And if you did that, the way that we calculate debt to income is I calculate debt to income month to month. So I look at the income you had in that month, and the debts you had in that month, and I tell you what your debt to income was in that particular month. I don't look back a year and say, your average income was this and all and and like your average debt was this at those different periods and then calculate your debt to income that way. And one of the reasons why we don't do that is because some people will actually get a job and they'll just gotten a raise in a job. And if they have their income uh, for that two months, they should be able to qualify. They shouldn't have to look back on average. And so it would mess up the math for those situations. So you could either do this lumpy income, which means the month you got that extra $25,000, your debt to income looks amazing because you got $25,000 of extra income, it drops your debt to income way down, and so it could look like you qualified to buy houses really easily that month. If we decide and we don't do it that way, we say, okay, look, you're making $25,000 every five months, let's say. I could just say, you're making an extra $5,000 a month. And if you do that, the challenge with doing it that way is, You don't really earn that $25,000 until after the fifth month, and then you have $25,000 all come in. But maybe you needed a certain amount of down payment, and that happened at month three, really before you technically had the money coming in. So it's this really weird catch-22 where if I model it one way, it introduces one problem. If I model it another way, it introduces another problem. So you really do need to think about what you're doing if you're structuring these and making it work. And that's what this says. Any questions on that? All right, cool. So we're going to try to find out, someone doing flipping, how long it takes them to achieve financial independence. And we're going to compare it to a lot of the other classes we've done, like Buy and Hold, and House Hacking, and Nomad, and Burr, and those types of things. And we're going to compare that. So in order to do that, I think it's fair for me to define for you what financial independence is mathematically. So financial independence is when you have enough income coming in from your investments to support your lifestyle. So in this case, for the example we're gonna do tonight, uh, they need $5,000 a month in order to support their lifestyle. And $5,000 a month gets adjusted up with inflation. So it's $5,000 when they begin, but 10 years from now it's whatever that is, $8,000, $9,000. So what are the investments and how do we calculate those to see if they meet that $5,000 per month income coming in? Well there's three different major sources of money coming in that we count. The first one is any passive income they have. And passive income consists of social security, any pensions, or any annuity income they have. So those are the three forms of passive income. In addition to that, besides passive income, the second thing is any cash flow they have from rentals. This is net of all their expenses. So it's, you take the gross rents and any other income they have coming from the property, like maybe laundry service or something like that, and then you subtract out vacancy, property taxes, property insurance, maintenance, property management, mortgage payments, did I miss any? Like all of the expenses on the property get subtracted out from it. The net that they have left over after all expenses is their positive cash flow, their their net cash flow, and that counts toward their achieving financial independence, so that would count toward that $5,000 in this particular example. And then the third source is any money that they have invested in stocks or bonds or something like that, it does not include their equity in their property. Their equity in their property is something completely different, you don't count this in number three, equity kind of, indirectly contributes to their cash flow. Because if you have a property that's free and clear, then the cash flow is a little bit better. But the third one is, any money they have invested in stocks or bonds or anything like that, times whatever their safe withdrawal rate is, in this case we're using 4%, but 4% of the amount they have invested in stocks, for example, um, divided by 12, because it's monthly, that would count toward their $5,000 a month income. So, passive income from Social Security, pensions, annuities, any positive cash flow, net of all expenses from rental properties, And then in addition to that, um, 4%, percent their safe withdrawal rate times whatever money they have invested in other assets, not real estate equity. Okay? So when all of those combined add up to be $5,000 a month adjusted for inflation, that is when we define that they have achieved financial independence, they're able to live off their passive income of some sort. Make sense? Their investment income. All right, cool. So if this person, which it's a couple, and I took out the assumptions because I got tired of covering them, but go listen to the previous podcast, Um, and we talk about like all their situations, I believe. But basically, if this couple took their money, and I think they were saving $1,000 a month, uh, and they invested it, they did no real estate at all, they invested in stocks, it would take them 40.17 years in order to achieve financial independence. Okay? If they did buy and hold properties, if they just bought a one owner-occupant property, I'm sorry, if they bought 10, 20% down payment rentals, it would take them 31 years almost. So if they just did stocks, it would take them 40 years. If they just bought 10, 20% down payment rentals, they saved up money. When they got a down payment, they bought that rental. They save up more money. When they get that one, they buy another rental, and eventually get to the point where they have 10. They end up being financially independent in just over 30 years, 31 years almost. If they bought 25% down payment rentals, they'll be able to do financially independent in 29 years. So they save a couple years by doing 25% down. If they do 15% down, it's the same as if they put 20% down, 30.83 years. If they bought one owner-occupant property, didn't buy any rentals and they invested in stocks otherwise, it would take them 33 years to achieve financial independence. And there's a whole bunch of other ones that I'm not gonna go through. That's all covered in the buy and hold class in detail. All of these and how they got the numbers, okay? But this shows you the relative size of how long it takes them to do it. Turns out the shortest one, in case you're wondering what the shortest line on here is, um, the shortest one is them putting, buying 10 25%, 25% down payment rentals and then doing short-term rentals with them, vacation rentals. That's the shortest one, and it takes uh, just under 24 years for them to achieve financial independence using that strategy, okay? So this is all the buy and hold ones. Go watch the buy and hold class if you want more details on that. For the nomad stuff, this is where they buy a property as an owner-occupant, 5% down usually, they live there for a year, then they convert that one to a rental, and then they repeat that until they have whatever number we have in here, but usually 10 rentals. If they do 10 nomad properties, Repeat that process 10 times, putting 5% down each time, they can retire, be financially independent, in just under 27 years. And remember, the fastest one was 24 years or so for those short-term rentals, uh, but most of these are well over 30 years. So the Nomad one is much faster, in general. So these are a lot faster. Then there's a whole bunch of variations like fixer-upper Nomad, uh, Nomad by proxy, Nomad to short-term rentals. Nomad with short-term rentals is 12.83 years. That's one of the fastest ones. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of other ones worth, house hacking with Nomad and, and these variations. So this is all in the Nomad class, if you want to go look at the details of that one. Uh, here's house hacking for those that were in house hacking class. And it got so big that it was getting hard to see them on the screen, so I went horizontal instead. But it just shows you the same type of chart, the number of years it takes for them to achieve financial independence. If they buy one property with 5% down, And I think this is one roommate, uh, it takes them 32.83 years. If they get additional roommates, like, I think this is four roommates. If they have four roommates, it's 26 years to do that. And then here's some other ones where they're doing variations on the theme. This is covered in the house hacking class in detail. Any questions on this? Cool. So, this is Burr. This is a class that you guys probably haven't seen because it's not posted to the podcast yet. Um, but, Burr, if you are able to pull all of your money out when you do Burr, it's under 12 years. Um, this is buying 10 Burr properties. If you, or if you can leave 5% in the deal, if you're not able to pull all your money out, you have to leave 5% in there, it's almost 17 years. And if you are able to do burr, but you have to leave 10% in the deal, then it's just under 22 years for you to do burr. Okay? And then here is the summary of all those so far not going into the fix and flips. So I'll leave this up here for a second. I know you guys have a hard time seeing it. But just visually looking at it, um, these are some nomad strategies. They're all pretty low. Um, Burr is really low comparatively. Uh, the Nomad with house hacking is really low. And then this is just more house hacking over here, and this is buy and hold. You could see relative sizes though, that really the winners tend to be Nomad, Burr, house hacking type stuff. Okay, all pretty good? Any questions on that? All right, let's talk about some flipping properties. So you, in my assumptions, which is wrong, I, I believe this is not correct. You did not have to come up with any money out of pocket. And the way I justified this in my own mind is you either had the money, because in this case they're, they're saving money in the stock market for a lot of stuff, and you use that temporarily because you're getting it back, or you were able to do enough work to find a good enough deal where you could do this with no money, or you partnered or something like that. So um, you didn't have to come up with money for down payment, holding costs, repair money, et cetera. So I think this is not the most conservative way to model this, is the way I would say this. Um, but I think it's fair, It's because you're getting the money back. It's not like you lose use of that money. Uh, I've also assumed you're earning $25,000 net after all expenses. Anyone have a problem with my $25,000 number? Anyone think that's ridiculously low or ridiculously high? Anybody? OK. You guys using any different numbers? Do you guys do any flips? Are you using twenty-five k for your number? More? After taxes, probably, yeah. OK. Yeah, more. More. But then it gives us a buffer. Gives you a buffer. And you'll a lot of times see 25. Yeah, okay. Um, so basically, it's 25. And so the amount adjusts up with inflation over time so that you know 25K 10 years from now is more than 25K. Um, and then paid taxes at ordinary income tax rates because you're doing it less than a year. So because you're actually buying a property, um, doing a rehab to it, and selling it within six months, you pay that money at ordinary income tax rates. So I figured out what their income would be based on how many they did in the profit of that particular flip and their income that they had, and I adjusted the number so that their income taxes were now higher on their paychecks, and the income tax was also higher on the fix and flip income as well. So I tried to make that adjustment for you so that it's a more accurate way to do modeling of taxes. Um, Taxes increase as they earn more from flips. And then any money that they had extra left over is invested in stocks at 8%. Um, They didn't do rentals in this particular case. So, here's what the numbers look like if they do flips. So if they do a $25,000 fix and flip every six months, and they didn't buy any rentals, they just basically put the money in the stock market, It takes them 18.83 years to achieve financial independence. So this is somebody who's flipping properties, they've got a a totally second job to whatever they're currently doing, and the first job they're saving $1,000 a month from that, and it takes them almost 19 years in order to be financially independent doing it that way. And the equivalent from before I thought was, was it 40 years? It was about 40 years for someone just doing stocks without doing the flips. But this is like having a second job that's bringing in an extra, you know, $50,000 a year. And they were making $72,000 a year from their job to begin with, total combined between the two of them. Okay, so if they did 30K flips every six months, that would be about a year and a half faster, 17.25 years. So you increase your profit a little bit, it speeds it up. If they're doing a $35,000 flip every six months, that's 16.08 years. If you happen to do $40,000 flips every six months, that's 14.83. If you do $45,000 flips, it's 13.67. And if you're able to do $50,000 flips every six months, that's an extra $100,000 a year in flip income. It's basically working a second job in order to do two flips like that each year. That's 12.83 years in order to do financial independence. Any questions on this? You assume they do the work, or they're part of the the cost? What was the question then? Oh, it wasn't a question. I mean, you were, when you say it's a full-time second job, you yeah. assume then that they're doing all the work. No, I think that even finding the deals, managing the deals, managing their contractors, and you know, overseeing the sale of the property is an extra job. Whether that's a ten-hour-a-week job or a twenty-hour-a-week job, I think a part of it is yeah, where they are like in the process. A, it's not necessarily a forty-hour-a-week second job or something. I it think, can it, depe- be, I think it depends. I definitely have had clients that this was their job, like. They were doing this, and you know, they were, I don't know, going and previewing homes to make sure that they had the comps right. And you know, there's all that stuff that you don't think of that takes time up. Um, eventually, I think you get to the point where you're good enough and you've seen enough things. We do that, but early on, it's much more in labor. Um, I think you get skills over time where you, don't have to, where, you have to, where you could do less. But especially you have teams in place and you know all the stuff you buy from Home Depot or Lowe's or whatever you're doing, you get some economies of scale and expertise practice. All right, so what if, instead of doing every six months, they had a 25K flip every nine months, or 25K every flip uh, every six months, but then they buy 10, 20% down rentals with any extra money that they have, or if they do 25K flips every six months, but then they buy 10 Nomad properties. So what if we did those three additional things? Well, they're starred. So if you do 25K every six months, but then you buy 10, 20% down payment rentals, 16.17 years. So it's faster than the 18.83 if they just invested in the stock market, but it's still 16 years in order to be able to hit five for that. What if they did the 25k flip every six months, but they bought nomad properties? That's 12 and a half years. And remember, in our modeling, their flip income goes away once they reach financial independence. They no longer have to flip after 12 and a half years. So they stop. Okay? So, 12 and a half years if they do the 25K flip every six months and then they buy 10 nomad properties. And then, if this is they do flips every nine months, it's 22.83 years if they do that. Versus if they did it every six months, it's 18.83. So, it's four years longer if they only do one every nine months instead of one every six months. Any questions on this? Just as an aside, because you guys have seen several of classes already, least some of you have. Do you like this format where we do like qualitative and then we go into quantitative? You guys like that? OK. All right. Uh, any other questions on this? OK, cool. Let's talk about living flips. So if, you, if you're doing a flip, if you live in the property or otherwise, but if you do a flip and it's less than a year, you pay taxes at your regular income tax rate. So if you're flipping a property and you make a profit on it, whatever profit you made on that deal, after all your expenses, then that gets taxed at your ordinary income tax rate. And I'm not a tax guy, so go verify this with your CPA. But this is my understanding. If you live there for, if you do the flip for a year, or if you live there for a year and you do the flip, then you're paying 15% capital gains, long term capital gains tax rates. And there are some exceptions where if you have an income below a certain threshold, I think maybe even there's one for above, although I don't think so. But uh, I know there's one where if you earn below a certain number then I think your long term capital gains rate is actually zero, if I'm not mistaken, but it's a really low income. But otherwise, if it's over a year, in most cases, it's going to be a 15% long term capital gains rate tax rate. So you could save your a little bit of money on taxes if you wait over a year when you're doing your flips although I'm not sure that's incentive enough for you to do shorter ones, and I'll show you that here in a second. If you hold the property for two years and you live in the property, this is if you live in a property for two out of the last five years, then up to certain limits, and there are limits on this, you can't do this with like you know, $5 million properties, or $5 million gains, I guess it's really, it's not the price of the property, it's the gain amount. But um, if you live in a property for two out of the last five years, then you do not have to pay anything on your capital gains on the property. So any profit you made on that property, um, up to some limits, and they're pretty high limits. I think it's $500,000 for a single person. Does anyone know what the number is? I think it's $500,000 for a single person. I think if you're married, it's even more than that. Um, But that's the amount of gain you get for two out of the last five years. And then you don't pay any capital gains tax at all on that. So this kind of came up, this came up recently for me. I had a client who was, he was, he was working for a builder. He was like the head super for a uh, custom home builder. And uh, his his builder owner, the, the owner of the company, th- did this strategy where he would buy a house. He'd build a house for himself, um, build it at a big discount. He'd move in. He'd live there for two years. And then he would sell it, and he would get to capture this gain by living there for two out of the last five years and he'd be able to walk away with a big lump sum of money by doing this. And he would repeat the process. And he was trying to explain to the super that, hey, listen, if you want to have us build a house together, you could buy this house, move in, live there get a discount, you know, because you're helping to build it. And, you know, so you'd be able to buy it at this big discount. Um, And then you'd be able to have this new construction house. And after living there two years, you do this. And so uh, he was talking to me about whether or not he should do this two year live in flip or do like a nomad strategy where you buy a property instead of maybe even buying the one at a discount where you buy a property that would make a good rental and then you convert that to a rental. And so we were trying to figure out the math of what's better for him to do. And I ran some just back of the napkin math before I even wrote this new code for teaching this class. Um, And the back of the napkin math, I was like, you know, I think you'd be better if you could get the discount that you were talking about getting on these new construction properties where you're building with your, your, your boss. Um, I think it actually works out better if you flip the property every year um, rather than waiting for two years. Um, I think that you're overvaluing the tax incentive and that you would make more money if you flip twice as many than if you got the tax incentive of doing the one deal every two years. And I did some really rough math and I proved that to myself. I'll show you tonight, it's more more subtle. Um, There are certain cases where it is true and certain cases where it's not. Um, And I think there's some nuance to it which I haven't really dug into. It's probably, although I'm probably not going to teach that class. But there probably is a class that one could teach on that topic alone, just going two hours on that nuance, but to be determined. So really, what I want to tell you about this was, for living in flex assumptions, this, this whole taxation thing about regular income tax rate versus 15% capital gains tax versus no capital gains tax if you lived there two or the last five years is one of the things we're going to test here. Um, there's no depreciation recapture. So when you own a rental property and you sell it and you got to depreciate the property over a period of time, the amount that you depreciated gets taxed when you sell, um, unless you do a 1031 exchange and then you just defer that tax until a later point. But you pay a depreciation recapture tax. In this case, they're not rental properties because you're living in them. Unless you happen to have roommates while you're living in them, then you would have some depreciation recapture. But in this case, we're assuming you're living in it, you're not renting it out. And so there's no depreciation recapture tax at all. So there's nothing to do there. And then on the sale, I did three different versions of sale, too. Um, I said, you're going to sell it for sale by owner, and you're not going to pay any real estate commissions whatsoever. You're going to sell it directly, and you're going to keep all the money yourself. So that's one version. There's another version where you are a real estate agent, and real estate commissions, by the way, are completely negotiable. There's no fixed amount. So if I give you a number here, uh, I'm not saying that every real estate agent charges this amount um, and that you should always use this amount. But I think 3% is a very common number you might see. And so I use 3%. So if you are a real estate agent, a lot of times you'll pay the buyer's agent who brings you a buyer 3% commission on the sale. And so um, I'll do do some examples where 3%, you are the real estate agent or broker. And also when you buy the properties, I assumed you got a 3% rebate on your purchase. So I'll do some examples here where you're doing live-in flips and when you buy the property, maybe you put 5% down and then you got 3% back when you bought it. So you get a little discount there as, as well. And then the last version of this is, you are not a real estate agent and you're not selling for sale by owner, you're gonna hire an agent, and I just arbitrarily picked 6% as a real estate commission. Could have been five, could have been three, could have been seven, could have been 24, Um, but I picked 6% as a real estate commission you paid for both the buyer's agent and the seller's agent to sell your house for you. And so we'll look at what the impact of commissions are on doing this. And then I always assumed you have a 1% closing cost to handle all the title insurance and your share of closing cost fees when you're doing the deal. Okay, so these are kind of my live-in flip assumptions. And so here are the live-in flips. Okay, where am I now? So one year live-in flips. So every year you move into a property and you flip the property every year. It takes you 39 years in order to be able to achieve financial independence. Doing it that way. Oh, I should tell you... I should tell you... um, I think we're doing 10% discounts. So I, this is how I did it, I think, I think this is how I did it. I think I assumed you were buying a property with a 15% discount, but you put 5% in repairs on the property, and so your net discount was 10. So if you bought a $400,000 property, you really are all in for 360. That's how, that's how I modeled it. Okay. So if you do the one-year live-in flips, it's 39 years for you to achieve financial independence. Um, if you do the one-year live-in flips, and you do for sale by owner, where you have no real estate commissions that you have to pay, because you're doing it yourself, uh, that's 26.67 years. So you save almost 13 years by not using the real estate agent on your sale. If you do the one year live-in flip and you are a real estate agent, where you get a discount when you buy, and you only have to pay half the commission when you sell, then it takes one year, about whatever that is, a little bit more than a half a year longer 27.25 27.25 years than if you did it for sale by owner. But it's still faster than if you did and you had a real estate agent do your sales, okay? And then here are the two year tax advantage flips. This is where you're gonna live in it for two years out of the last five and you're gonna do those deals. Same metrics, you're getting a 10% discount. Um, but there's, there's an increased depreciation because you're holding it for a longer period of time when you do it that way and you have some debt paid down over that thing. But you do get that in the other ones too. They're just more frequent, right? Um, so two year tax advantage living flips, years, just under 35 years for doing that. Remember, if you did the one-year one, it would have taken you 39 years. So this is one of those examples where I thought it was going to be the other way, but it turns out the two-year one is tax-advantaged. However, that's only if you are paying the real estate agent. If you have a real estate license, or you're for sale by owning it, it is the other way, as you'll see here in a second. So two-year tax-advantaged live and flip as an agent, 29.17 29.17 years. It's longer for you to do it that way than for you to not do it that way, and then two for you to do it this for you to do the two year versus the one year, I should say, and then the two year tax advantage living flips where you do for sale by owner exact same time 29.17 years, which is longer. The two year flips either as an agent or when you're doing for sale by owner take longer than doing one year flip, doing one year flips where you are also for sale by owner or an agent. If that makes sense. OK? Any questions on this? Uh, you'll also notice living flips take a lot more time for you to be financially independent than doing the flips every six months and investing in stocks or buying, st- or buying rentals or buying you know, nomads or whatever it is. And because I can, this is all of them on the same chart. And the flips are in this middle section, because it's alphabetical. So like somewhere between here and here are the flips. So you can get an idea of relative size of how long it takes. You know, Some of the like, flipping ones are pretty aggressive. But they're, remember, they're getting jobs. This is like an extra job for you to go do this if you're doing these flips and whatever. So it, it's like almost an unfair comparison time-wise. Um, I don't remember where I was, but it was somewhere in this ballpark. And you can see some of the faster ones are these nomads and nomad with house hacking. And house hacking ones are kind of like the faster ones. Uh, buy and hold, a little bit slower. And then the regular house hacking one's over here a little bit longer. Any questions on all of them? Not going to go into detail, but you can look at the chart at your leisure. Any questions? All right. This is the uh, penultimate slide, second to last slide. And posture, dramatic effect, take a drink, too. otherwise i have to repeat it it'd be funny if you could add a bar on on that of getting a minimum wage job for 20 hours a week extra yeah yeah compared to yeah. this is the tricky part right like you, you think that's a great idea and I, I do think that's a good idea too but there's everyone's like well i have this unique situation i'd like to see you do this where i you know, I get $50 more in rent or, you know, I hire a property manager because a lot of these are without a property right. manager. Or like, you know, because there's, there's all sorts of variations. Or, you know, I'm going to not do 5% down for all of them. We're going to do 3.5% down. I'm buy a duplex first or a fourplex. And then I'm going to do my 5%. How does that vary? That's why there's so many different variations. I mean, this is, this is literally why I'm, I have zero concern. You know, I'm doing like real estate financial planner podcast where I take one of these scenarios and each episode is me diving deep into like one and then I go and I drill into like exactly what's happening and I can compare it to like another scenario that was before and show you how it's better and how it's worse and stuff like that, I have zero concern that I'm ever gonna run out of these. Right, because yeah. I think I'm on like buy and hold, like yeah. 25% down, and I've got all these to go with like all sorts of variations of doing this and what happens if I make more, what happens if I make less, property manager, not property manager. You know, stop working before I hit t- technically hit phi and see if I can coast in. And there's all sorts of weird stuff to do. Because yeah. I was just thinking, I mean, you said six a flip, two flips a year, every six months for 30 years. Yeah. Uh, man, that's a lot of time. Right. <laughs> I totally agree. Yeah, and, and we all know that house hacking is the equivalent of getting a side hustle, right? So you could do side hustle, go look at the house hacking ones. Those are kind of the equivalent, right? It's like getting a job, but for $650. So you could look at it that way. I mean. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of weird ones. So. All right, so this slide. I used to have a very different version of this slide that I would teach. And the, the old version of this slide, I'll just I'll, I'll jump to the punchline, and then I'll, I'll walk you through this one. Um, the old version of this slide was, for every rental property you have, it's the equivalent of you doing a flip every year. So for every rental property you own, it's the equivalent amount of money that you would make from doing a flip every year. And I'm going to walk you through what I mean by this. So I just randomly took the properties we were buying and all these other scenarios, and I jumped to year 10, just to show you what year 10 numbers look like. So in year 10, the amount of money you make from appreciation on the rental, using a 3% appreciation rate, was about 15K. The amount of money you made in cash flow on that property, I think this is 20% down, the amount of money you made in cash flow on that property was $6,720. The amount you made from paying down on the loan was about $6,000, a little less than $6,000 and the amount you made in cash flow from your tax benefits, cash flow from depreciation, was about $2,600 and change. Okay? Add all those up together, it's about $30,000 in that one year from appreciation, cash flow, debt pay down, and the tax benefits of owning that rental property. Squint really hard, it's about 30 grand. If you do a 25K flip, about 10 years in the future, they're worth about $33,000 and change as your flip amount. So for every rental you own, It's very close to the amount you make in a flip over time. You make a little bit less earlier on, you make a lot more later on. But if you look at the chart, if you did like a chart of what your flip would be going through all these ones, and then you did a chart showing you what your profit, overall profit from these four areas for doing a rental property, they're very similar. Okay. This is every year. This is this is the appreciation in this one year. You know, do a four thousand dollar, four hundred thousand dollar property at three percent. It's like twelve grand. Right? So, yeah. Uh, and then cash flow, I mean, it, it's what it is. It's like 500 bucks a month. So, yeah. Interesting, right? And is there more work doing a flip or doing a rental? One of them kind of becomes, especially if you have a property manager, one becomes very passive and just kind of like propels itself. So, then when you have 10 rental properties, it's like doing 10 flips a year. Another way to think about that. Okay? Now, to to be fair, like the counter argument is, but flips are all cash now money. They're all like the side, right? And when you do a rental property, this is cash later. Appreciation and debt pay down is equity in your property, which unless you do a cash out refinance or you sell the property, that's money being held and internally compounded for you for later. This money is now. With flips, all of it's this side, right? All of it's cash now. That's the counter argument. But in some cases, you wanna have tax-optimized returns later, because you're not paying taxes on the appreciation except for property taxes, and you're not paying taxes on debt pay down except whatever you had to pay for the income you earned that paid for this. So this is tax deferred in a lot of ways, where all the income you have coming in from the flips is money you have to pay tax on that year, unless you're doing something weird, like the two-year deferred flip or something. Any questions on this puppy? Oh, do you have All right, so conclusions. So I, I went through some numbers tonight, but assumptions matter a lot. Like, you can't go and say, oh, I attended this class once and James said that, this particular strategy is always the best. No, because in different market conditions for different people with different income, and you know, different relative skills, different appreciation rates, different rent appreciation rates, different stock market rates of return. Some will do better than others. Some will do worse than others. And some may be very, very, very different than what we showed here tonight. So you can't just say automatically, this is the best. I think what you have to do is you need to do the math yourself or you need to put your own stuff into the real estate financial planner and model it out and then change your strategy and do a variation strategy and then compare the two. Um, I'll also add one other thing. We really only looked at one measurement. We looked at how long it takes to achieve financial independence when in fact there's a lot of things to look at, right? There's the risk profile. You know, doing one strategy gives you a lot more risk. Like doing something where you only invest in the stock market gives you all that stock market risk, whether that's good or bad. You know, doing ones where you're buying 5% down rentals gives you a lot more leverage risk of the real estate. You know, that, that like uh, price resiliency or the equity resiliency and rent resiliency stuff that we kind of talked about at the beginning, where, you know, rents decline, that's potentially problematic. Um, yeah, 80 flips. So you have all that flip risk, right? And with Burr, you have the flip of, you have the, all the additional Burr risk in there too. So like all these strategies have different risk profiles. And so one may be faster, but it may also be a lot more riskier, where if you ran a Monte Carlo simulation where you had all these variables, for price appreciation, rent appreciation, stock market rate of return uh, being variable, mortgage interest rates being able to go up or down on you, uh, inflation rate becoming variable, like all those things becoming variable, you may find one has a much wider range of values where, yeah, maybe you can retire really, really early if things go your way, or maybe it's like forever where you don't actually make it uh, with this particular strategy, where another strategy might have a really narrow band where you're almost certainly gonna take longer to get to financial independence, but you're definitely gonna be financially independent within a six year period. Um, and so you might see that if you run your numbers and have certain things happening. Uh, you can go to realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash model, pick your city, and over time, it's not all done at this point, but over time I will be adding all of these strategies in so that we use the numbers for that city and you could just copy any of the scenarios um, into your own account and just start from there with. Numbers that are very similar to whatever city you're in to be able to do that. Okay. That is the end. You guys have any questions For we're done? Is that helpful? Different than other fix and flip class you've attended? Where they kind of talk about rehabbing and estimating re- repairs and finding deals and stuff, a little bit different? Good stuff? You guys are really quiet. Wow. Okay. All right. Well, if you don't have any more questions, I'm going to end. I will stick around, but uh, I will see you all soon. Thank you all for coming. Bye-bye for now. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates, cash flow on rental properties in San Jose is harder than ever. Book a call with the Real Estate Financial Planner to apply our proprietary 88 strategies to improve See the show notes to schedule a call to discuss collaboration opportunities.